Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. Thanks, Neil. I've been speaking to Mark Quartermain, ex-head of crude oil trading at Shell. If you've not already listened to the first part, probably best to go check that one out first. You'll find a link in the show notes. In this second part, I ask Mark about the advantages and challenges trading for an integrated oil company. We discuss his role in the evolution of the Brent benchmarks when the basket expanded to add other North Sea grades, and he reflects on Brent's stay in power. But first, Mark's about to tell us how the standardization of the Brent market made it possible to trade hundreds of millions of dollars worth of crude for a beach on the south coast of England. Let's rejoin the conversation. The Ford market and the GT&Cs that uh, we had um, in Brent meant it was much, much easier to trade cargoes um, to, to, to cargoes of Brent than maybe some other commodities. And indeed, I once traded six cargoes of Ford Brent on a cold south of England beach on Boxing Day, December the 26th, when much of the world was still open for business. That was $100 million worth of crude traded in about three minutes. I remember my wife saying, so you've actually just sold six cargoes of crude. The kids, you know, three little kids were around at that point in time. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was possible because all you basically had to agree was the price, the month, the counterparty, the GTNCs, just the reference to those GTNCs and then the, the normal credit conditions. Uh, and that was about the year 2000. So things obviously have changed since then. But it was uh, an indi- in, in terms of where and when you can do your trades and perhaps you know a little bit more structure around that then but it worked the six cargoes flowed and we got paid and everything else and it was an indication of just how easy it is to trade when you have that common standard agreement on on 99 of the terms and conditions of a deal so it meant it really really easy to do business very very quickly um and so uh yeah that was uh that was just uh, one anecdote from that point in time and of course I think it's worth adding everything was made simple by Brent being Brent. There was no quality conditions to agree. Unlike a, con- a products contract with sulfur, vanadium, asphaltines, flashpoint, cloudpoint, depending on which fraction of the oil barrels refined products you're dealing with, you didn't have any of that. You just called it Brent. Um, and, and that was it. That was basically, it's almost like uh, buying a particular fast food from a restaurant and you know, without advertising anyone particular, but you know what you're getting, for example. And that's one of the appeals of going to that particular restaurant. Well, that was the case almost with buying Brent. You knew exactly what you were getting without having to re-specify 
lots and lots of other quality conditions. That's really interesting, and because I know that, uh, like we'll come on to in a in a little while, some of well, I'll get your at the end, some of your reflections on Brent the benchmark and and what made it so successful. Um, uh, the crude was this was a crude Brent crude. It was a highly fungible product. Indeed, in in the sense that it was, I would describe a sort of middle ground crude, something that most refineries could actually um, could process. Um, so, uh, yeah, unlike unlike certain crudes, where perhaps they may be particularly heavy or particularly light, you might have um, you know something which is a at the light end a condensate which could only be produced you know run through certain facilities, or you might have a a particularly heavy crude that could only be run through a refinery that had, for example, a, a coca, which in the UK at that particular point in time, there was only one. Um, Brent was a was a was a crude that was very, I would describe as accessible, perhaps rather than fungible, David. It was something mm, okay. that most people most people could uh, could play with. And it had perhaps um, we can go into this in due course, it had certain other qualities, both in terms of its location and its quality that were that were important to I think its sustained success. Okay, we'll come on to some of those other qualities in a, in a little while because I know we're going to talk about how the benchmark developed. But first, perhaps just a word. So Shell was, I mean, let's we can go technical, but it was a large company, right, yeah. with a huge system, what we would call a, an integrated oil company. Now, how did the the role of an IOC and your role with Shell differ from other traders around this period. Um, perhaps you could, I mean, if we break it down, you could give us a sort of what were some of the challenges or advantages of trading at a, an integrated oil company? Yeah, I, I, I think the first thing that's really important to say is that, as I'm sure is the case today, but I don't think all IOCs were the same in the late 1990s. In fact, I can say that with a great deal of confidence. My memory isn't fading that quickly. We were very different. Um, Exxon didn't really trade. Um, huge emphasis from Exxon on value chain integration. So for them, it was you know almost matching up all their sort of, sort of, sort of supplies and purchases. Conoco, a little bit more adventurous. Um, Total and BP were towards the other end of the spectrum by pretty much common agreement. And we moved towards that end, the, the same end as occupied by Total and BP, um, after the SMI structure was established, that meant we were on a, you know, on a, uh, a, a in a position to be, uh, you know, to to be more adventurous. I would describe with our with our trading on a global basis, but generally the challenges for the IOCs were the same. They would have been more bureaucratic than than perhaps other market participants. Um, although I will certainly add, just in case any old bosses are listening to this call. Uh, <laughs> All great credit to the shell management that existed post integration, because they certainly did everything they possibly could to try and reduce that gap around bureaucracy, um, and make sure that whilst we took compliance ever so seriously, um, we could get things done in a as was necessary in a fast moving market. Uh, on the flip side, of course, that was one of the challenges, but the advantages were you had information from right across the value chain. I go back to my earlier career, you know. Having, you know, knowing what refineries did, knowing my marketing side of the business meant that, you know, if you had people in place who 
had the contacts in other parts of the value chain within the company and had experience in those parts of the value chain, you could you could knit that information together really quickly. You, of course, had to stay within the regulations, like all market participants, when it came to material issues like inside information. You know, if, for example, a particularly important platform went down, we had to behave in certain ways. Compliance around that issue was rightly treated very, very seriously. And in fact, was critical to the sustainability of the benchmark. Um, you know, that's one reason why I think it has, again, succeeded for as long as it has, because people did take that uh, very seriously. But you even allowing for that uh, that necessity, you still had, of course, a good fundamental insight on the supply demand picture from the rest of the business. And all IOCs had that benefit and they had the potential benefits of scale, the options to place cargoes that all of a sudden didn't have a home, uh, presence in all parts of the value chain. And also, I guess, versus I would just say some players at the edge of the market, they had a bit more credibility when it came to performing on the contractual obligations um, which go with buying and selling these uh, large value uh, uh, cargoes of crude. Mark, we're going to we're going to turn now to we have touched various stages on Brent, but we're going to dive right into a little bit more of a discussion on on the benchmark and your exposure to it. So um, we haven't we haven't gone through your LinkedIn jobs chronology uh, one by one, but like towards the end of the 90s, was it or the turn of the noughties, you were North Sea crude manager? That's correct, David, yes. Yeah, so 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 how key in that role? I mean, I, I mean, it seems like a silly question because obviously the answer is it's going to be very key. But how key was Brent? Perhaps you can unpack for us that how key was Brent to your remit in that role? Um, and were you also able to kind of keep a, a bit of a broader eye on things beyond the North Sea? Yeah, no, it was. Thank you, David. It was really extreme. It was really, really important to the remit. It was the benchmark, of course, for many crudes in the Atlantic Basin and beyond. So other desks that you know, beyond the North Sea desk really wanted to understand at all times what was going on with the Brent pricing complex, what was going on with the CFDs, what was going on with the forward market structure, because they were maybe buying and selling their West African crude or their high sulfur crude in some instances based upon future pricing dates for for crude and of course we talked about early in my career my uh, my issue selling a fuel oil cargo off uh, off uh, pra data uh, of pra uh, fuel oil quotes two weeks into the future and then the problems i hit well guess what the other desks wanted to understand you know what we thought um, about you know selling cargoes off certain dates and and so forth so they the, the, what perhaps one thing is not necessarily obvious to every single one of your listeners was that much of the time the people around me um they were what was much more important to them was what was going on with the cfds the contract for differences what was going on with the forward market structure the future of the dated price for the next few weeks that was much more important to them than what the outright price was um we very rarely uh, in shell and i think in many of the other trading companies had intentional um exposure to outright price the price of crude was subject to so many forces that we couldn't foresee macroeconomics, um, etc. That that really wasn't a place that we really willingly had exposure to. So many of the other desks, they, first of all, 
they didn't want to have exposure to it and then they could hedge their exposure away by using futures contracts for example to buy and sell um uh, fixed price um, uh, derivatives or, or futures so they they, they would they, they really cared about the structure um whether the market was in contango or backwardation that was something they cared a great deal more about and that was something because it was much more fundamentally based was something that we had much more of a clue uh, about where the market was going to be developing. And of course, our refining and production parts of the business, they were also constantly interested in our views on Brent, both in the short term um, and the long term. So it was, we had lots of things that we had to do. Um, but if we didn't have our eye on Brent, then the, then somebody would be upset with us. Um, were you, I mean, just a, I was just thinking, I mean, in, in terms of how practically you you were all based in the same office in London at this time? Uh, well, indeed, we were based in offices at various parts of the world. But a yeah. lot of, uh, well, when I was certainly all secret manager, the, the, the key desk managers were all based in London and very close by. Yes. Like obviously, we, we're very used to now jumping on a call, jumping on a video call. Um, was Did you have conference calls and things then? How were you kind of collectively sharing these views? Uh, no, well, in the office, of course, but, but in London, it was you know, literally yeah. shouting across the room. Um, <laughs> well, ironically, there's actually quite an interesting point in that. In most parts of, a, of any organisation, people generally want to have more space between them. Traders are a strange breed, and I can speak as one for 25 years. Um, <laughs> you know, we were the people that wanted to be closer together all the time. We wanted the minimum amount of space between us and the next desk because literally shouting across the room was very often the best means of communicating you know what was happening in real time um so we didn't want to have boxed off offices we didn't want to have we wanted to have open plan but more than that we want you know where you sat and how close you were to other desks was something we spent hours on designing to make sure that we kept those uh, information chains as as short as possible between the people that had to know what was going on in, in various markets. So, um, and of course, then for the wider world, it was um, you know we were we were probably still in the days of pre-conference calls at that point in time. It was much more by telephone. Um, but I went back to what I said earlier. You know, if you, you know, being in the being in this what I might call the center of the world time zone GMT was was really really important if you wanted to run a um, serious trading operation at that particular point certainly if you had exposure to brent that was the place to be and uh i think uh, one or two of your other contributors on other webcasts have perhaps made a similar point yeah i think they have yeah um so the turn of the noughties around 2002 um there was some big methodology changes going on with brent and you had uh, a front row seat to, to those developments and I guess might have contributed some views as well. Um, so there were there were other grades being added. Um, we kind of alluded to it right at the top of this episode that actually production of the Brent field um, peaked quite early on in its life um, in terms of like where we are now historically, peaked quite early. Um, and so the Brent benchmark really, people have been predicting the challenges that it would face in terms of um uh, supplementing that supply and some of some of the ideas back in in 2002 at the turn of turn of the century then were to to add other grades such as 40s Oseberg and there were there were other developments as well to the methodology such as quality premiums 
Um, could you talk us through your perspective on how the benchmark evolved and maybe what contributions you, you made, if sure. any? You couldn't be in the job I was in without contributing a fair bit to this. And of course, we had to make sure that we did that in the appropriate way. That was really, really important. Um, so we, you know, and the sustainability of the benchmark was was something that was very much uppermost in our minds. Um, the PRAs, I think it's important to, put, important to point out, first of all, you know, whether I agreed or disagreed sometimes with them um, at various points of my career and even around this time, there's no getting away from the fact that they were under massive pressure from their customers to proceed, to bring a perceived good order to the prices they were reporting to ensure that they continue to be representative of the fundamentals and a useful and fair basis for people to price their other crude purchases and sales. So around that time, David, the volatility around data was sky high on a percentage basis, albeit at very low outright prices. So when the underlying price of Brent futures was, say, $20 a barrel, uh, but the market was down $3 a barrel on dated or up $3 a barrel in a particular week on dated, that was really, really noticeable um, and had a lot of people getting quite excited, whether they were producers or refiners or just someone else in the value chain, including traders. So having a wider base of crudes and looking at the other terms and conditions was necessary, particularly when you considered that Brent production was falling and was already you know, well sub 400,000 barrels, about 400,000 barrels a day. Um, 40s and Ozyberg editions meant that that quadrupled overnight. Um, it, it, yeah, that was the proposal. That's what it was going to do. Um, and the belief was that was going to add perceived robustness and reliability to the Brent complex. So it was a very, very compelling um, uh, argument to put those uh, grades into into play. I, th I think it's worth probably just reflecting one reason that making additions to the basket had less resistance than than, than it might have previously had is that refiners have become more tolerant on what crudes they could use for different modes of operation. This, this is why perhaps some of that introduction was important. I talked about the fact I had some refinery background right at the very start, and I mentioned as a as a bitumen um, technologist at that point in time, early in my career, I was very sensitised. That, that's where I became very sensitised to you can only make bitumens from certain crudes at that point. And, of course, we, you know, over the years, that's become more flexible. But the same was true when it came to Brent. So one thing um, that Brent was really key for back in the you know, late 1990s, early 2000s was for lubricant manufacture. Um, so we would very often you know, put Brent through a refinery and then that would be, you know, we'd be generating lubricants as one of the products out of the refinery at the back end of that. Um, and so lubricants had a very, very narrow set of crudes for some players, including Brent. And therefore, the idea of throwing other crudes that could be delivered into you that perhaps weren't so compatible, that would have been a real problem, say, 10 years previous, but became less of an issue by the time we got to the early 2000s. Um, so from my perspective, at least, though, I think just generally speaking, it was really important that the crudes added, that the crudes that were added into that Brent basket were similar to Brent in quality. Brent, of course, was a blend of crudes from different fields in its own right, but it was a light crude with just under 0.4% sulfur. Uh, 40s had a similar API, similar density, but was slightly more sour. Ozeberg was slightly lighter and sweeter. Um, 
but they were they were at least similar grades so you didn't have to have massive quality premiums you weren't going to be looking at something you couldn't process at all if you finished up getting given one of those uh, uh, grades in the Brent basket rather than what we knew as uh, as real Brent, if you will. Um, there was huge lobbying, uh, David, from some parts of the industry for Ecofist to be added around the early 2000s. Another light, uh, sweet, crude. But there were pushback from others. And perhaps one reason why there was pushback from others was that it, some of the key ingredients for new crews to be added were was that ensuring that no one had too much percentage equity in an added grade or the aggregate of grades in the Brent basket. And maybe there was a fear from some market participants um, that Ecofist was perhaps too concentrated in certain hands. There was another reason why Ecofist was perhaps, at the time at least, um, you know, maybe there were some some slight pushbacks. That you know, what was really key was key was that ensuring with any grade in the Brent basket that larger ships, LR2s, VLCCs, etc., could be loaded to allow trade, for example, to the Far East or to uh, or to the Asian subcontinent. Um, and, and Brent Ozzyberg and Falls at forties very much fitted uh, that bracket. Um, I think you touched upon the fact that you know there were other sort of terms and conditions being played with at the time. There was what, one of the issues that was particularly contentious was the issue of volume tolerance. One PRA wanted to completely eliminate volume tolerance on Brent cargoes, but that was shot down as being not just impractical, but actually impossible. I'm going to just ask the listeners to consider. You know, many listeners, listeners may now have electric cars, but take them back to. Um, uh, those people and others back to the last time they tried to fill up uh, at a petrol uh, pump or a diesel pump. Um, and imagine you're trying to be one of those people that stops the petrol pump or diesel pump at a fixed number. It might be litres or value, pounds, dollars, whatever. And now I'm going to ask you, you know, so you're, you're trying to stop it at, say, 70 pounds. Now add, say, three decimal places to that. So not just 70.00, but 70.00000. It makes it 1,000 times as hard to stop it exactly at 70. In fact, it makes it impossible. So we just said, look, if you want to completely eliminate volume tolerance, that's just, it's just, you cannot do that. There had to be some volume tolerance left. It was reduced, albeit, uh, however, from 5% to 1%, but that made it something we could all then um, you know, physically uh, work with. Changing the window of trades was also key. So th that was something, that, again, lots of conversation in the marketplace at that time, but it got moved in the end from 5 to 15 days, which is you know compatible with 15-day Brent, to 10 to 21 days. So it became 21-day 21 uh, Brent. And of course, it's been expanded subsequently to allow more cargoes to be tradable at any one time as a data Brent cargo. And throughout all of this, with the incorporation of grades, with the change of volume tolerance, with the change of the window of trades, we just kept on amending the SUCO 1990 GT and Cs accordingly. But they were able to be flexible enough to be changed, but still remain a fulcrum of the Brent complex. And I'm going to just say here, retrospective, 20 odd years on, huge uh, congratulations to everyone and huge testimony to everyone who was involved from the PRAs to the traders, from the brokers to the operators. It was a massively seismic change when all these changes happened, including the incorporation of 40s to Oseberg. 
it was a seismic change for the market, but no balls were dropped. It was really, really impressive about what the market can do when the market has to make a change like this. And of course, with the proposed incorporation of WTI Midland from May 2023, um, and you know, first of all, the Tsuko 90 GTNC conditions are being amended again uh, after previous changes to include Echo and Troll. And once again, um, uh, you know, the, the market will have to cope with the with this sort of seat with, with this with this incorporation and the the various challenges it takes, including the changing the GTNCs. Once again, I have every confidence the market will rise to the occasion um, and uh, and incorporate uh, uh, the new grades to make that continued sustainability of the benchmark possible. Mark, well, it, it strikes me that. This you, what you've described is like trading is perhaps one of the most competitive commercial the areas of business and economic life, but um, all of these changes are only possible by people kind of making compromises here, kind of fierce competitors making compromises and coming together for the kind of greater good of um, market structure and continuity. Yeah, I think I think it's, I think it's a great observation. Um, indeed, it always will be competitive as indeed anything should be in a free market that's what you expect is if it's not competitive then the opposite is really not very palatable but everyone has a, an interest in in making sure that the market can still work and if you don't compromise if everyone just says no no we we refuse to trade on those gtncs or we won't trade unless this grade is incorporated or whatever then you're dead it, or, or the the uh, the sustainability of that uh, market is is dead. So, um, uh, you know, of course, everyone had their you know their you know, their, 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 you know strong positions on certain issues, but there comes a point where the conversation has to stop and you have to move on. And that's what happened in the early two thousands. I'm sure that's what happened with uh, the incorporation of uh, Ecofisk, and then subsequently, I, I know it's what happened with Ecofisk Control uh, later on. And it's what's happening now around the incorporation of, uh, of WTI Midland. And I know, for example, in this most recent iteration of the benchmark, of course, there would have been many people that, that would ultimately have had to give up on their wish to have Johann Svedrup incorporated, which, of course, is a, a much heavier uh, crude than the existing basket of crudes. And they would ultimately have had to have, you know, relent on that in order for the uh, for the market to continue. So, yeah, compromises were important then and they, they, they continue to be important now. Mark, perhaps we can turn now to get some final thoughts for you from you on Brent and its longevity. Um, how do you assess this Brent, this benchmark it's sort of the champion of them all um you were there in the hot seat at the equity producer of the brent field or an, an, an equity a major equity producer in the brent field um for many years um how do you assess the role of the benchmark yeah so my reflection is brent's longevity has been maintained over four decades it is indeed a remarkable survival exercise I think a number of reflections, it helps that Brent is where it is and can be connected to all parts of the world. Um, you can it, you can use the, the crudes that are part of its basket or have been able to use them um, pretty much anywhere. It, it helps that you can load big ships that make getting it to those places affordable. We talked earlier about the Far East and the Asian subcontinent um, as just one example of that. 
I think it helped that London was on a central time zone for much of the world's population. Um, so even people in the States and even people in the East, at some point during the day, they could you know, connect with the, the folks um, who were involved in the operations around the Brent market and the various grades that make up the Brent market. I think I mentioned before, it helped that Brent was a grade that didn't need the most complex refineries in the world to process it. And the grades that have been added to it subsequently uh, have not changed that. So it's been very accessible and relevant to many refiners. And then a bit of a chicken and egg thing, such perhaps, but but the very confidence that Brent has built in itself as a benchmark over the years has meant that people have been prepared to trade derivative contracts many years into the future off of uh, off of Brent. And therefore, um, a lot of people have a great deal of interest in seeing its survival because they've you know, written a contract based off it. Um, so that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and, and helps maintain the momentum of it. Um, so I think all those factors have uh, have been have been helpful. A number of people, of course, make their living off the benchmark, including the futures exchange owners and the brokers and the PRAs. So, again, that helps with sustainability. Um, and just as it is important to have a choice of exchange and choice of broker, I'll just throw in there. I think it's really important to have a choice of PRA as well. If you're buying any service, you want choices of suppliers, particularly if the service you're buying is absolutely unavoidable. I think the final comment I'll make is it, it really helps if governments and other institutions have generally stayed away from the development of the benchmark and let the market participants sort out the issues underlying its evolution. I think we talked about that a little bit when we uh, when we we touched upon uh, uh, Fortis and uh, Anosi. Uh, and their incorporation, um, you know, the, the 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 market was really really successful in 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 making that change. I'm sure it'll be successful next year with the incorporation of uh, WTI Midland, um, and 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 long may that continue, and long may Brent be a, a successful benchmark, whatever is incorporated within it. Mark, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real privilege to have someone on the podcast who was at the coalface of of Brent for for so many years. Um, so so many, many thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. And I hope the listeners enjoy this. I've certainly enjoyed uh, speaking to you about it. That's great. Well, to our listeners, if you'd like to engage with anything Mark has said, um, you can join in the conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn by using the hashtag uh, GX Price of Everything. Uh, you've been listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. Goodbye. Goodbye.